In today's episode of VFM, we are talking to Railpens' Caroline Escott about the autumn statement, productive finance and what value for money means to her. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the 44th episode of VFM. And as ever, I couldn't be happier to be joined by my co-host, Darren Philp. How are you feeling this week, Darren? Yeah, not too bad. Um, I've had a busy week, Nico. Um, yeah, was how was the, the conference? Yeah, it was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Lots of really good debate and discussion. I um, actually mm. um, got, got to interview Caroline's boss, um, oh. John Chilman. Um, so we were talking about some of the policy priorities and policy landscape. So it'd be quite interesting to see whether what Caroline says sort of chimes <laughs> with what uh, uh, John says. Um, we're very but, aligned at Railpen. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure. You are. Um, you're still still feeling a bit under the weather. You know, mm. still got a cold, still a bit croaky. So um, I yeah. hope our listeners forgive us for that. But you know, um, I don't. I probably don't have to be on mute as much as I was last week yeah. um, which which may be a good thing or maybe a bad thing for our listeners so, I'll, let, I'll let others be <laughs> I can write in um, <laughs> so two full days chairing there was the DG publishing LGPS conference that what it is? no a private and public summit so a combination of DB DC LGPS and lots of investment people ah fantastic so um as we've slightly hinted already delighted to welcome caroline escott so uh caroline you're the senior investment manager at railpen uh the current chair of next gen which we'll come on to and a trustee of the standard life master trust caroline very welcome Thank here you, you are much. really <laughs> pleased to be here yeah excellent fantastic. really good to have you on and um like are you wearing all of those hats as part of this podcast? <laughs> yes, I think so. I've got a few more that I could put on, but uh, <laughs> yes, I am sure that uh, I will be taking them off and putting them on at, at various stages throughout this. Excellent. Well, do make it clear to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have literal physical hats with me. Yes, <laughs> that would be fantastic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Um, I, 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 I had Chris Curry uh, from the Dashboard Program on the conference agenda. And I had him speaking in his dashboard capacity and then on a panel more in his PPI, Pension Policy Institute capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely going to get a physical hat um, or physical hats <laughs> that um, I can I, I can get people to sort of, um, you know, change, um, you know, when they're when they're sitting on stage, because I think that could add quite a lot of fun and, and good visual content for the audience. I agree. Yeah. You'd have to think about what kind of hat suited what kind of oh. organisation. And that could oh. get quite controversial, I think. You know, who deserves yeah. the sequins or the pointy <laughs> hat or the, I don't know. <laughs> well, I want, I want but, a climate change hat. I'd like a, a, a responsible <laughs> investment hat. Um, I probably need an actuary hat. That's probably quite a dull hat. Um, <laughs> would, 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 would that be the pointy one? The, the, the actuary hat Somewhere up between a wizard and a dunce. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love my profession. (laughs) (laughs) We know, Nico, we know. Um, Caroline, fantastic to have you on. Um, You know the form. You've listened to the podcast, I'm sure. Um, We're going to start with the news. Um, It's been a bit of a quiet week, so I'm expecting this this session to, you know, fly by. Um, What have you got for us? Thank you. So, um... Very pleased that I could pick more than uh, one topic from what has been a very quiet week, as you say, Darren. Um, both of my topics are or revolve around the autumn statement um, and the number of different things that were published on that day. So, the first one that I chose, probably with my Standard Life Master, Tra- Master Trust hat on, is this paper that DWP published about the evolving regulatory approach to master trust. And I thought this was interesting in a number of respects. So the first, it's just a great snapshot of the market sort of five years on. Um, the second piece, of course, and I'm sure that I'll have been reading it like every other person involved in the master trust in the entire UK as soon as it came off the press, was 
what the regulator expectations are going to look like. And there's some stuff in there around um, more careful probing by TPR or further probing, because I think they actually do this already pretty well, of how trustees are making investment decisions um, and also thinking about what the appropriate trustee board and trustee experience and expertise looks like in a number of ways. So that's firstly um, the level uh, of investment expertise they have. Um, and of course, master trust boards like ours do use um, investment advisors. So it'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out um, and what they say on that in due course. Um, there's also some interesting stuff in there around conflicts of interest, mm. which is an interesting uh, one and one I wanted to pick up on. And interesting because obviously as a trustee of a master trust, you are there to exercise independent judgment and um, uh, scrutiny and to think about value for members and have the members' interests at front of mind at all the time. And, and you know, you, you can do that for any number of schemes, I think. But if you think about the master trust business specifically and how it's been set up, and particularly at certain ends of the market, there is a bit of a competitive tension there. I love your understatement. <laughs> a bit, a bit of a competitive a tension. Of um, I'm trying to be, is it stereotypically British? Is that a of understatement? <laughs> yes, um, you know, there quite is... awkward. That's the... <laughs> quite awkward, yeah, there you go. Read, you know, uh, take from that what you will. Um, and <laughs> thinking about, you know, my role and how I see Standard Life and Phoenix, sort of the scheme funders, and, you know, you do challenge them and you do hold them to account when you need to, and you also work with them. But I also couldn't sit on the trustee board of a master trust where I didn't have a sense of, sympathy with its mission and its ethos and its purpose and all that it's trying to achieve and I think the trustees generally are very good at managing all the different hats that they wear and all the different conflicts of interest that come about just because of the nature of this but I thought that was that was something that I wanted to to pull out mm. and I'll be interested to hear what other trustees think about it too and then the final piece in this paper specifically was around the need for employers to be supported to understand value for money um, in terms of more than just the lowest cost and of course the EBCs and the corporate advisors and their role in supporting employers to think about what the best option for them looks like when it comes to choosing a master trust will need to be supported to think about value more broadly as well and I think that is changing already but it'll be interesting to see how it develops. There's, there's a lot in that, Caroline, and we could Sorry, spend Darren. the whole podcast. No, 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 no it's, it's great. We could spend it's the whole DWP podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, the conflicts fund's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you if you're going to do the scrutiny that you, you you that you do, yeah, you go kicking the tires. You're making sure you're representing members' interests. You're you're probing, you're prodding, you know, and you're holding the providers to account. But inevitably, that. Um, means that you are being disclosed some pretty sensitive and commercial mm -hmm. information i would imagine yeah, yeah. um so, so so do you think that you, know, you might not have a view on this but do, do you think the regulator will get to an end point of okay you can be a trustee of one commercial master trust and one commercial master trust only do you think that's where we're heading because it makes sense that you know you get different with the same trustees on different single employer trustee boards or DB boards. Yeah. Um, and that model works because you can, mm. you know, there's no commercial, you know, competition between um, those types of schemes. But when you overlay trusteeship or when you combine trusteeship with that commercial pressure, it brings a whole new set of issues, which I, you know, have been around since Master Trust were first in the market. But it seems to me that TPR are finally waking up to some of this stuff and thinking, hmm, is this something we need to focus on? Um, so it's certainly, you know, from reading between the lines, it's certainly, and thinking about some of the conversations that have been floating around in the industry, as you mentioned, Darren, for some time now, it certainly seems that maybe, maybe that might be what mm. TPR is thinking of. And I was trying to think about it with my rail pen hat on, with my corporate <laughs> covenants. There you go. I'm sorry, I'm clearly going to be doing that for the entire session now. <laughs> I really like the idea of different coloured. I'm already imagining the hat that I'm wearing. <laughs> but, but thinking about it from a corporate governance perspective, so sort of from a stewardship perspective, and thinking about company boards, um, we would, oh, I would probably uh, raise an eyebrow if you had a non-executive director of, say, a building company who was also non-executive director of another building company 
in a very similar space. And I think mm. that as a stewardship professional, if I was invested in a company like that, and by the way, I have just chosen building companies completely randomly, mm. I would probably be trying to understand more about how that particular individual manages conflicts of interest. Um, so, you know, you can draw too many analogies, I think, almost too easily between corporate governance and scheme governance. But I think there is some usefulness in comparing and contrasting the the, the two sectors and ways of operating. Yeah, yeah. So um, did we get any hint from DW peers to when this new rule book, this, this, this tome of uh, new central regulations and powers, uh, is gonna is gonna come. Is this something that they'll? No doubt they'll have a call for evidence, and then they'll have yeah. a consultation, and then yeah. they'll have uh, a change of government, and then they'll have <laughs> another call for evidence. So are we talking? We don't know that, Nico. Or... <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of will, and as parliamentary time allows, and, Ooh, yeah, that, and so on. Is. I think they've kept it quite high level, probably quite sensibly, mm. given all the things you said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay. <laughs> we look forwards. Darren, there's years left in this podcast, isn't there? Oh, no, 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 the, the, the longer the government strings this stuff out, the, you know, um, the more people are going to have to listen to us. So, yes. hey, you know, if you're, if you're bored of the, if, if our listeners are bored of the podcast and they need to get on and demonstrate value for money for their scheme members, that's, that's the way to shut us up, isn't it, Nico? Oh, and if, uh, you know, the, 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 the pensions minister, uh, Paul Maynard wants to, uh, you know, reduce the risk that there's a new government next year, then maybe he should come on and, uh, <laughs> you know, speak to the audience of sympathetic, uh, uh, pensions, pensions geeks. I don't know that I'm insulting people if, uh, I, I call our listeners geeks, but, um, people who love pensions who listen in. Indeed. So there we go. The Indeed. best kind. Of <laughs> Caroline, you, Car Car Caroline, you said you had two stories for us. I did. So the other one is slightly different, but also something else that was published on the day of the autumn statement. And this is this letter from the Capital Markets Industry Task Force. And I don't know how closely your listeners will have been following this debate, but the task force, CMIT, is this group of industry grandees that are thinking about how to create thriving UK capital markets. And it includes people like uh, Julia Hoggett, uh, Jonathan Simmons from GSK, Peter Harrison from Schroeder's. And it's thinking in the whole around about a lot of subjects we're already aware of. So the declining level of investment in UK equities by UK pension funds, but it also spends some of its time talking about how corporate governance standards are too high. Maybe shareholder protections and investor concerns about executive remuneration are actually stifling business. And we at Railpen and a lot of other asset owners as well are a little concerned at the nature of this debate and this kind of argument because to us it seems to ignore the fact that you need to make a capital market attractive by making appealing to companies and investors. Um, that mm. the mm. shareholder protections and high corporate governance standards that the UK has had has actually have actually been fundamental in making it the global financial powerhouse it's, it is today and, and really creating a USP for it on the global stage. Um, and also the fact that there are some other issues beyond rolling back investor protections um, that might be uh, more impactful. And this letter was signed by about, got in front of me, about 30 to 40 different people, mostly from the company side. There are a couple of chairs of asset managers there. And, and it says things like that the conversation on executive remuneration in terms of quantum has gone too far. It also welcomes the fact that there's the decision recently to cancel a lot of the proposed improvements to the UK Corporate Governance Code. And it says a lot of other things, but essentially it's saying, I think, that asset managers have gone too far on stewardship. Um, and the interesting thing from my perspective, and I think for pension schemes generally, is that this is published in the same week that there was this write-up of an asset owner, asset manager roundtable mm. convened by asset owners, with lots of asset managers in the room that essentially said that the asset owners felt that asset managers weren't necessarily going as far as they would like them to on stewardship. And bringing it back to the letter, it feels clear that the people who wrote the CMIT letter aren't really close to the asset owner community. Um, and the asset owner community, of course, are ultimately the, the paying clients and are those that are most closely aligned to the needs of beneficiaries um, on this particular issue. And 
for the couple of asset manager chairs who signed the letter, I wouldn't be surprised if there were going to be some very difficult conversations um, that asset manager client facing reps are going to be having with asset owners who have been spending large parts of the last few years in meetings with asset managers talking about how important voting rights are and how fundamental mm. corporate governance is to ensuring good member outcomes. Mm. If, if our listeners could see us, yeah, um, and obviously on a podcast that is slightly tricky, they would see me shaking my head at all this stuff. Um, <laughs> it, it just smacks of total short termism. I agree. Yeah? Um, and I think that, you know, we had the, the global, we had the global financial crisis, the banking system almost collapsing. You had all the reviews, um, you know, coming out of that. And I think it was Paul Miners, wasn't it, that did a lot of um, a, a lot of work on this stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, stewardship, he identified was one of the most fundamental things that you need to get right, because you you need you need someone policing the global economy. Yeah, and I think one of his conclusions at the time was, you know, pension schemes and asset owners and institutional investors need to step up, and and be and and, and be more active stewards, and and it just feels to me that, you know, yes, the economic times are difficult at the moment. Yeah, and um, we're looking to cut costs. We're looking to, you know, in a post-Brexit world, you know, um, what 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 a fantastic in economic environment that's creating. You know, we're looking at cutting corners. We're looking at, um, I don't know, you know, um, having a deregulatory agenda that, okay, might reduce costs for a couple of years, might improve a balance sheet for a couple of years, but fundamentally, in a few years' time, we're going to have to reverse it all um, because. Ultimately, this is a long term game and we need good stewardship. We need the best practice. And that is what, um, as you say, Caroline, a, you know, a good, a really good USP for the UK has been. You know, we water stuff like that down at our peril. I completely agree. And if you could see me, you'd see me nodding whilst you were saying that, Darren. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so for me, it's it's um, it's a classic sense of, uh, you know, I'd call this executive capture. So this is obviously not executive capture. But the sense that the tier below who has the detail knows better than the tier of stakeholders who actually provide the oversight and finance, um, it's just arrogance. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think we should understand stewardship when done well to be about improving companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the people signing this letter from asset managers, I wonder if we shouldn't just name a few. Um, so I can <laughs> there, see there are, only, um, there are only a couple. Well, Schroeder's is on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, Aberdeen is on the list. Um, Martin Gilbert, who I guess owns Asset Co., I don't, I don't know quite what the setup is there. Um, so he's maybe a sort of owner executive. I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, th- these are these are companies. I think, you know, the the, the uh, so uh, uh, Hendrik at uh, at 91. Um, these are these are companies that I think in general pride themselves in engagement. Yeah. Um, so to have their chairs sort of come out and say this is this is a sort of poor poor shot. Um, it seems it seems, uh, you know, it's, it's be interesting to see which goes. Um, is it the stewardship policy or these chairs? Um, <laughs> because, you know, they've, they've set out this conflict, right? It, it wasn't their, their, their companies or their, or their staff that set out this conflict. So um, interesting to put your own job under pressure. But I guess that's that's their own prerogative. So we'll see whether the, the chancellor that we have for uh, at, at minimum uh, 11 months uh, response <laughs> to, no, thank, I mean, there, you know, there's some pieces in here around uh, share awards and, and share dilution, which I would have thought an innovative company could could work out ways to sort of come around. Um, uh, but um, yeah, no, it seems it seems odd, doesn't it? It does. And unfortunately, it runs counter to a lot of the really good stuff that policymakers have been pursuing to try to support schemes to be effective stewards of their assets. And as Mm. in so many instances, not just in the UK, but elsewhere, it feels like there might be some regulatory um, disconnect here and lack of alignment uh, when it comes to to policymaking on stewardship. So, you know, I'll be... (laughs) I look forward to seeing how this develops along the lines that you mm. suggest, Nico. Um, and mm. I encourage pension schemes who care about this, and we know they do 
from a number of things that, that have been implemented to, to ensure that their asset managers coming back to um, sort of something we were talking about previously to, to, to communicating with their asset managers and letting them know that mm. what they say on these kinds of things matter matters and that good stewardship matters to, to member mm. outcomes. Yeah, I mean, so there's a general sort of rules-based versus principles-based pushback here, right? So, so, so essentially, I guess the uh, the the I'm not, I'm not speaking in defence of this letter, but they would say, you know, the rules have become too tight, um, the disclosures have become too excessive, um, but unfortunately, we do live in a world with increasing expectations of disclosure. Um, those are only going up. Um, so we're coming into a world of uh, sustainability and climate disclosures being increasingly ubiquitous. These guys will hate that. Um, you know, no doubt it will add cost to every company to work out where the carbon emissions and damage to biodiversity happens in their business. But I think that's quite important. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, it's a shame if the dinosaurs don't understand that the asteroids are coming, but it is. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that they've looked up in the sky and said, actually, if we write a letter to the Chancellor, we can deflect the asteroid. That's brilliant. Um, but, uh, you know, forlorn. If only the UK was uh, in charge of the world still, <laughs> maybe this could have some effect. Uh, evolution could have been evolution could have been so different, couldn't it, Nico? Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, that's a sort of truism, I think, yeah. <laughs> so, Nico, what have you got for us? Well, um, I, I don't know if it's news or an update. Um, so uh, as uh, well, the name of the podcast suggests we like to talk about value for money. Um, and uh, we have, uh, I guess we were sort of kicked off with the consultation at the beginning of the year. Um, although we, we decided to start and then I think the consultation was delayed. So we spent a few yeah. episodes talking about what we hoped the, the VFM consultation would include. Um, so part of the autumn statement, we're still there, uh, was uh, releasing the news that next year the FCA will come around to consulting on its its rules uh, for contract-based schemes on value for money. Mm. So obviously we've got such a simple regulatory framework for, for defined contribution um, that, uh, you know, it could just be done in one. But um, so, so in parallel, presumably the pensions regulator will be uh, pushed to make sure that we don't have uh, uh, another kind of regulatory arbitrage uh, system between contract-based and master trusts. Um, and so presumably the pensions regulator behind the scenes will be very influential on in making sure that the rules are consistent with its thinking, even if it can't get the uh, legislation, the, 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 the time in parliament to get the legislation to give itself the powers to have the same rules. So um, uh, next year, and it says spring, which, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like the, the, the governments and our establishment uses the word spring to mean any time. I'm going to say the 1st of August is the last day of spring or the, the, the end of July is. Yeah, you could comfortably say H1. So spring first half of the year. But but I think if you did an analysis of what it actually meant in practice, you know, uh, maybe in October, Nico. <laughs> I think we're still in autumn. Um, as far as, uh, you know, both society and, uh, you know, the government are uh, concerned. Um, but we are also promised the FCA's uh, SDR, the, the the disclosure rules and labelling regime. And I think that's promised in autumn and I'm pretty sure it's not happening in the next week. Um, so, yeah, spring next year, um, we can we can we can all guess. Maybe that's a sweepstake uh, for for our guests over the next six months. When is when does spring end? Spring will end, I guess, on the day that this comes out right um so um uh, maybe caroline will come back to you on a, in a second uh so yeah we'll we'll have the uh, the detailed rules um for consultation which is essentially the i won't even say the last uh kind of nail in the coffin of of uh you know this 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 policy finally getting towards implementation because no doubt there'll be a lot to, to discuss about the rules and uh, uh a lot to debate as to when they won't might actually get implemented but um yeah so there will be some progress we are promised by the chancellor or the the, the notes underneath it um on vfm next year so looking forward to that Caroline, when do you think spring? Uh, gives us... <laughs> when, when does spring stop sprugging? <laughs> now, um, you know, in you know, I can sort of, I have some sympathy uh, with policymakers when they say, you know, they'd rather spend the time 
getting things right and pushing it back. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, I, I recognise on a number of different uh, policy issues that sometimes we in the industry would like to see things and we sort of set aside time and we build mm. expectations and plans around when we expect things to land. But, you know, I suppose as long as the, the end result um, is where we want it to be. And actually, look, one of the things I was going to say, didn't TPR also issue a statement? There was so much stuff that came out on Wednesday. Also, there is a statement, statement to say, yes, that yeah. they were looking forward to working um, more closely and aligning yes. with the FCA. Yes. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's no, yeah, so we, we there's a Louise Davey quote I can read, but um, obviously there's, um, uh, it needs parliamentary time for TPR to proceed. Yes. Um, whereas FCA has its secondary legislation powers. Um, yep. So, um, as as Darren corrected me in in pre-briefing, has to consult on its use of them. But um, <laughs> yeah, doesn't doesn't need well already has been granted by Parliament. Yeah. Um, you know the, the the ability to move forward. But the thinking and intention is there. Sorry, Darren. No, no, no. I was just going to say it also has to do a proper cost benefit analysis. You know, proper work when when you when the FCA introduces new rules, the the level of rigour over them is much much higher than say if DWP were going to legislate through secondary legislation. It's quite interesting. Fair enough. Um, but can we just talk about governance? Because I think we triggered onto it. So, you know, I know when the board meetings of the company I work for are uh, into 2025. So I can book a slot to say, you know, in, in March 25, I'm bringing this thing. Mm. And any time it slips from now on, uh, you know, I will have to explain. I mean, it will not be like just under the, it will be, we had a forward calendar, you know, uh, track changes says there's a line through this thing and you've moved it to June 25. So so what gives? Um, so I don't understand how they, you know, the government can't have any sort of calendar. That just, it just amazes me. <laughs> Nico, come um, on, like, you know, you, 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 it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's as parliamentary time allows. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but this doesn't need parliamentary time. We just established that. <laughs> well, no, no, well not, not from the FCA perspective, but you said the government and, you know. Um, well, the FCA doesn't have that calendar either then. That's very worrying. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the, that's the ultimate um, conclusion of uh, what you've said. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to miss, you know, some of the deadlines I promised 15 months out. Uh, I know no bones about that, but uh, I'll come back and give you some sort of reconciliation about it. But, yeah, they just yeah. go like sometime half one. All right. OK. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, half so, one is uh, five weeks away. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm so glad that your board meetings are, are mapped out so far in advance and but i hope you fed in the, the the dates and the schedule of this podcast so you know you're not going to get called away at the last minute and well um a uh obviously uh and b <laughs> b um the thought that i'll be attending uh you know, these, these, these board meetings um I, i'm only going to go if i've been particularly naughty or particularly good um so um I, there's definitely some climate change stuff I'm, I'm i'm hoping to get through but uh yeah that might be done in sort of side sessions that i can i can place around our wonderful podcast <laughs> got your priorities on the right order nico Oh, absolutely. Um, so moving swiftly on, Darren, what have you brought in for us? So um, I I brought in Pot for Life. Yeah. Mm. And and this was um, very, this, this has been widely, this has been widely trailed. Yeah. Um, and there was a piece in the FT um, and on the either the day or the two days before the autumn statement. And um, I don't often read all the, the comments in the FT. Yeah, but, um, you know, the headline was pot for life. Yeah. And there was one comment that said, you know, said that the Tories are really on cannabis now or something like that, which I thought was <laughs> which was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like moving, move, move, moving on from that, um, you know, this, this is a fundamental change or potentially a fundamental change to our pension system. Mm. So, you know, we we. We, we, we've, we've got Paul Watson on the podcast next week from Host Plus, and it'll be great to talk to him in depth about this. So I'm not going to go through all and all of the details because I think that's going to be a, a key theme for, for next week's podcast. But but, you know, but this is allowing people to choose where their pension money goes. So at the moment, you're, you know, your employer chooses your scheme. You've got no right to vote with your feet. 
Yeah. Um, when I, um, you know, when I moved from people's pension to smart pension, yeah, I couldn't say, oh, I'd like to keep making my contributions to the people's pension. Yeah. Now, that would be, you know, A1, I couldn't do that because the legislation doesn't allow it. B, it would be quite a uh, sort of difficult and awkward conversation with my new employer. So I probably wouldn't do it anyway. In, in that circumstance. <laughs> in, in, in that particular circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but, but actually, you know, if you're looking for innovation, if you're looking to drive competition, if you um, are looking to create a connection for people with their pensions, then theoretically, yeah, and I emphasize the theoretically, there's some potential positives to this model. And it's a model that, you know, is probably, it probably deserves some time spending looking at it to see if it could actually help with some of the big challenges that we've got in the UK system. Um, you know, then you think practicalities, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's taken us long enough to deliver a pensions dashboard, which is just sort of showing information on a computer screen. Yeah. Well, sorry, taken us long enough to not deliver a pension statement. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. That's what yeah. I meant. Um, and, you know, do we have the, the frameworks, the architecture, the infrastructure, the admin systems, the, you know, the links between employers, payroll and schemes? You know, like, it's going to be one hell of a project. Mm. So I think that what the government has done is they've launched a call for evidence. Yeah. And I think it's right that they've launched a call for evidence. Um, but I do think that, yeah, it's worth it's worth thinking about. It's worth mm. looking at Australia because they have something very similar through their sort of stapling um, rules and regulations. Um, what I didn't like about it, yeah, um, was some of the industry's response. Yeah. So so some of it was like, OK, well, you know, why are we even bothering looking at this? Yeah. Um, yes, it will be a radical departure. But, you know, the usual suspects just um, expressing concern, trying to guard the status quo. No change here, please. You know, um, and I think that, you know, if you've got the government looking to be ambitious on stuff and actually think about the future of our system, that's got to be a good thing. Discuss. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, I've always wanted um, the single pot for life question to be resolved. Um, I mean, the the uh, the other way, you know, the previous debate was uh, portfolios member, right? Um, so does the do you does your employer pick your scheme and then you drag your legacy pensions towards your new scheme, um, or does your member pick the scheme? Possibly, I can't. What do you call it? Stapling. Yeah. I thought it had a different name in the first sort of uh, breath of the the UK's thinking about this, but I can't remember what it was. Um, would, it's sort so of employee. It's, it's employee chooses. That's the... well, no, no. So it's it's essentially your first employer is the default. So when when you first yeah. have a job, you're auto enrolled into a scheme, and um, obviously you could uh, as an employee then choose. So there's a sort of choice yes. architecture point to this yeah. but then your next job you would take your previous one with you um so, so and that's that, a portfolio's member that's a portfolio's member type of project. no sorry you would take your scheme with you so that'd be scheme right. yeah. Member. Yeah. 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 yeah 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 scheme portfolio's member yeah yeah so um i guess it's so i mean my my, my quick answer was going to be like brilliant idea tell me how you're going to implement it yeah, yeah. um uh i'm fascinated at how it's going to generate a thousand pounds per annum um, of additional pension, uh, which is the eye-catching part of the claim, possibly election winning, we shall see, but um, the eye-catching part of the claim. But um, was this, is this additional, a thousand pound additional per year, or yeah. is it an additional thousand pound in your pension pot? No, I think it was a thousand pounds per year. Really? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the no. Jeremy Hunt has been brilliant at making up numbers that you could absolutely never say as a provider. Do you know what um, he needs, Nico? Do you know he what he needs? He needs, he needs a good actuary advising. No, actually, what That's he needs what is he a compliance With his actuarial hat on. He needs yeah. an actuarial hat. Shall, I, shall we send, shall we make and send to Jeremy Hunt an actuarial hat? Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, okay. like, presumably this is not where the um, 
the OBR doesn't opine on whether a thousand pounds a year is a reasonable number. They opine on whether yeah, in five years time, the, the debt is growing or small or, 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 or shrinking. Um, but they don't opine on whether you can make absurd claims like a thousand pounds a year for just having a pot for life. No, no additional I, I, contributions. But but this is all spin, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, because because we had this after the mansion house stuff and um, the thousand pounds and I'm not convinced it's per year, but let, let, let's it, it'll be good to sort of check that. But anyway, yeah, Nico's frantically <laughs> looking at it. Yeah. So I'm stalling a bit slightly just to give him a bit of time to do that. No, no, you say. But what it is, is it's an amalgamation of lots and lots of different measures. Yeah. So it was like, you know, there were headlines around, you know, getting it, pension funds to invest more in liquids and productive finance will add X to someone's pension pot. Yeah. Um, and actually, when you look at the figures and work through it all, the vast majority of um, the gain, I think you'll find will come through to changes in the auto enrollment rules and regulations. So um, reducing the age at which people start contributing from 22 to 18 and removing bound earnings. And I think there's a lot of um, hocus pocus, jiggery pokery, whatever you mm, might uh, okay. want to call it, that is putting everything in a bucket. Um, with you know, where to to present these election, oh, is, they're not going to be election winning numbers, are they? Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> damage uh, limitation. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. Damage limitation election type numbers, just to grab a headline. Yeah. Okay. And, so can I talk and, to you and, about and, some and, of the and, headlines? And, 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 the, and the final, the first point is, if a pension scheme, yeah, did that, yeah, or if an FCA regulated insurer did some of this stuff, blimey, there would be a scandal. So um, I don't have the uh, paywall licenses, nor wish to download all of the cookies from the major national papers onto my work laptop, but um, I can show you the, I can tell you the the Google. Uh, summaries of uh, the pop for life story. So um, the Telegraph, I assume the headline was how to choose your pop for life pension. That's that's they're really jumping out the gun very quickly there. Um, four hours ago, we we're recording at, at one o'clock on Friday. Uh, together, the Chancellor says quite rightly, Darren, the changes. So presumably with all of those other packages, uh, but will provide an extra thousand pounds a year in retirement wow. for the average earner saving from 18. So, so suggesting that yep. you're right on those changes. But the sun has gone for um, Brits could get pot for life pension in massive, massive shakeup. And they just said Brits could get pot for life pension in a massive shakeup planned over Jeremy Hunt, a thousand pounds a year in retirement for the average earner. So, you know, those are it's big numbers to try and achieve for someone who's going to be that might be what uh what eight nine percent additional mm. coming from um you know not moving on well not having multiple pension parts um only as far as we know the people's pension actually reduces your fees on the basis of the size of your pot they do um so uh the only place that you could claim that you might get more money as a result of having a single pot would be TPP in the DC market. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, do you still have, what were they called, the Public Centre Transfer Club type arrangements within uh, Railpen and sort of between railway employers and the DB? Ooh, so essentially yeah. you could, yeah. Yeah, yeah so in, in the olden days, um, when you're in a DB scheme in one part of the civil service, and you move to another part of the civil service, you didn't have to become deferred in the old bit of the civil service and then kind of start a new part. You could just move it yeah, in. That's right, yeah. And that saved you, that would have that would have accrued. So essentially the, the, the deferral increases may well be lower than your salary um, unless the employer was particularly generous. And one of the Barclays entities that they'd acquired had, had hard-coded 5% per annum in deferral, which was just brilliant for the long periods of, <laughs> of slow inflation. I'm sure they regretted it since ever since. So yeah, look, I, I just feel like the pot for life narrative uh, alone just can't be can't be picking up this thousand pounds a year. Um, so as you say, it must it must be a bunch of other things that's going on here. Um, but, sort of Darren's point at the beginning about sort of being disappointed in the industry reaction. Um, I suppose the fact that the government is looking at this will give the industry an opportunity to feed in and say why they are concerned about the breakage of the employer link and so on. And mm. one would hope that the government will pay attention. Certainly that's been one of the 
pieces for us from the FCA listing review. They've got a few consultations. They've had one which we all responded to um, saying it was a bad idea. They've got another one coming out. We hope that they're going to to listen to us and at least put forward some compromises. Mm. So I suppose that will be the opportunity for the industry to have the debate on this piece. And if the industry or if it's generally agreed to be unworkable or difficult or too technologically complicated, or if it's going to distract resources from other things that could be impactful, then presumably this might might not end up being taken through to fruition. I don't know, but it'll be interesting mm. to see what the debate is like. We'll see, won't we? We'll see. Um, really I mean, conscious of time, Dick. Yeah, really conscious of time. We're going to have. Can to I move just on. link to our topic once, which is just that? <laughs> so, so obviously, it, it just increases the need for value for money because you're putting yes. an unsophisticated person who doesn't understand charges, performance, choice, retirement, accumulation mm. into now the hot seat of of selecting uh, pensions. Yeah. So um, all well, of that engagement stuff. They don't have to. They don't have to. There, there will still be defaults there. It just gives people the option. It just gives people the choice. Sure, 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 sure. Um, but as soon as they get into that, then the employers, there's no, there's no uh, kind of going back yeah. to the employer now, right? Yeah, I think um, Jonathan Stapen wrote an editorial piece just saying, you know, is this the end of workplace pensions? Mm. So interesting, interesting. Caroline, you know, yeah. you, you've talked um, a lot about, um, you know, various various pensions issues yeah and you talk passionately about it and you know with a smile on your face but how did you ever get into this industry how you know how how, how did you develop your love for pensions um thank you i do love it i feel very lucky to have uh, been given the opportunities that i've been given so far i'm afraid like everyone else you've had on your podcast and like nearly everyone else i've ever spoken to in the pensions world i fell into pensions but got bitten by the bug and have remained here um, here ever since and hopefully will will remain in pensions for the foreseeable. Um, I've always been fascinated by the intersection between politics and economics and by the mm. idea of how you can try to influence for the better. And I think working at that intersection on the issues that really matter is where you can achieve real change. And so my career has been quite varied. It's been in most of that sort of financial services policy piece, but but slightly different disciplines. Um, I started out uh, working lobbying, actually financial services lobbying, spent some time in Parliament working for some MPs on sort of speeches and things like that, which was fascinating, but it definitely put me off ever becoming an elected politician for, for, for one reason and another, but a very exciting um, place to be. Um, moved into policy work, um, policy with a little bit of public affairs, have worked at so many trade associations. And Darren, I'm sure you'll be with me in terms of how fantastic working at a membership association can be just in terms of the kinds of experts that you get to work with and the intellectual challenge of trying to create policies that are sort of leading edge, but also don't alienate, not so leading edge, that they alienate uh, the majority of your membership. Um, and a, f- a few very happy years at the PLSA where I led um, off the side of my desk um, on some of their diversity and inclusion work as well. But then I really wanted to feel closer to the member. I think policy can be very influential, but sometimes for me it felt a little um, a little abstract. And so the careful, opportunity... Caroline, careful, Caroline. I've, 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 been, I've developed my whole career on policy. So. Well, policy, and the thing is, policy can be very influential, can't it? You know, if you want to achieve change, this is one of the things I always try to talk about when it's... Um, when I'm sort of talking about stewardship and system level stewardship and the kinds of tools you have available. If you want to achieve influence on things like climate change or nature or labour relations, then working, dedicating some of your stewardship resource to policy is the way to go. And Darren, you know, you are the perfect example. You know, if you have enough expertise in a particular issue and you've already articulated even just on this podcast, um, sort of the, the, the depth of your understanding, if you can take that understanding and focus it towards a particular aim, then you can achieve real good. So I'm very passionate about policy, but you know, you, I didn't, I know, spoke, I didn't yeah. know I'd be pay, I didn't know I'd be paying people to appear on this podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm expecting an extremely nice check in the post, Darren. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy you a glass of wine next time I see you. How about that? I guess that will do. That'll do. I'll take that as well. Um, and so, you know, I spoke to all these people who were passionate about sort of working for members and I sort of thought, oh, you know, I want a little bit of that. And so when the roles at Railpen and then I think shortly thereafter Standard Life Master Trust 
came up mm. and I was recommended for them. Um, I leapt at the opportunity and and similarly that the sort of EDI stuff that I was doing at, at PLSA um, when I got the opportunity to first sit on the on the board on main co of, of NextGen, um, which is an industry body that, that has been set up um, specifically to try to promote fresh perspectives and support emerging talent, mm. um, to sit on that and then to become vice chair and then chair. I also leapt at the opportunity because it was a chance to sort of roll my roll my sleeves up um, and, and get stuck into the weeds of things. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and I wanted to ask you about NextGen, actually. Um, mm. You know, what, what is it? And what, um, you know, I, I actually know what it is. I'm asking on behalf of my <laughs> You were um, on conference a few weeks ago, Dan. I was, I was, and it was brilliant. I was a participant, so thank you. Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I asked a question that was generated by AI as well, um, if you remember, which was um, which was quite fun. Um, yeah, careful, Darren, because like now you're just tempting me to replace you with AI. It's... <laughs> thank you. And, and to be fair, to sort of draw draw out the sort of the real charm of that approach, um, it was actually on the panel um, where we were discussing AI approaches, AI, yeah. uh, the practical, okay, yeah. use, yeah. the practical yeah. use they could be already in the pensions industry. I think uh -huh. I said, um, I'm, I'm at a conference discussing AI. What, what, what is what sensible question should I ask or something like that? And, <laughs> and it actually generated a brilliant question, didn't it? <laughs> it did indeed. I mean, it wasn't so, the only question you asked. But anyway, yeah, so thank you for, for coming along. Um, so, so next gen, what is it? Um, what you're trying to achieve? It, yes. So it is, uh, first of all, entirely run by volunteers. Mm. Um, and there's this misperception that it is just about supporting younger generations. And, and that is one aspect of it. But actually, it's much more around trying to build a more cognitively diverse and much more inclusive industry and about supporting the next generation of leaders, regardless of background or experience, to to thrive. Um, and we try to do that through focusing uh, our efforts in two main ways. So the first is supporting the supply um, of diverse talent. And we do that through um, uh, mentoring. So we have, I think, the longest established and certainly one of the biggest um, mentoring programs in the industry. Uh, and we also provide training as well, soft skills training. So, uh, Darren, I'm sure you wouldn't have needed this, um, but certainly in the first session of our next gen conference was actually a very practical session with people who wanted to do it um, of, of uh, networking training. And we had the wonderful Joe Craig of Quiet Room getting people standing up and literally giving them practical tips of 45 minutes before the conference started as to how to network, what kinds of questions to ask someone, also how to extricate yourself from a conversation, which I've always found the hardest thing to do. <laughs> Nico's sort of nodding. I've always found that the hardest thing to do in networking, to support all these people who took part to get the most out of that day, but also out of future networking events. Um, but the other side of it, as well as supporting the supply side, is thinking about how we influence the demand side. So those decision makers who are already on trustee boards or IGCs or, or indeed policymakers to try to encourage them to not only understand the real value that can come from people with a slightly different perspective sitting on those same decision making boards, um, but, but also to support them and we've produced some uh, very practical guidance about researching, uh, sorry, recruiting and retaining the next gen, uh, providing them with practical support and guidance so that they they know exactly what it is they need to do in order to create a really inclusive environment. Well, you, I think you had, was it um, Matthew Syed from the we Times? We did, um, he was, who was your opening keynote and it was ama an amazing um, opening keynote and, and what I loved about what he did was how he engaged with the audience yeah so um people would ask him questions yeah and he would give his best to do his best to answer the question but then he would say and what do you think what's your view you yeah. know um, and there was a conversation that was going on between you know this um legendary journalist yeah um and and, and, and the next generation. And I think one of the one of the one of his observations and uh, correct me if I get, get this slightly wrong, Caroline, um, but, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But it was like, you know, you guys are great. Yeah, this is absolutely fantastic that you're doing a conference like this. We need to get I'm just going to call it the old gen, but that, that's not the right thing to do, is it? But, but actually, we generation. <laughs> yeah, we, we we need we need we need the CEOs, we need the chairs of trustees, we need we we need other parts of the industry 
at events like this because that's how you create the connection that's how you learn that's how you share experiences and that's how you you know create that diverse thinking and diverse culture and and and, and help to to develop the leaders of the future the administrators of the future you know the actuaries of the future you know whatever whatever you know whatever someone's role is or what they want to do within the pensions industry going forward you know um, having that career path having that conversation thinking about that development is absolutely crucial so mm. yeah it was um it was it was, it was, a, it was a great day thank you and all done again by the side side of the desks for all the volunteers and as i mm. said on the day you know this so next gen people are some of the most talented people, some of the most passionate people I've come across in the industry. And that conference with I think 150 attendees and, and everything looking beautiful and professional, you know, thanks again to Alan and Overy for their offices, was done around their day jobs and their part-time jobs and their caring responsibilities and their mm. side hustles and everything else. So they are the most tremendous team. And and Matthew Side was absolutely right. We actually had, in terms of the people who signed up to attend uh, the conference, mm. we had quite a few people from across the across the generations, across the seniority levels, however mm. you want to articulate. But it, when it came to dropouts, it seemed to be weighted towards sort of the more senior people who potentially just, mm. just couldn't dedicate a day to it. Mm. But it's something we need to, I say we, I roll off at the end of this year, uh, but it's something the next generation of next gen, um, main co and, and share and vice and so on will I know be looking at very carefully. So uh, that that sounds really, really interesting, uh, but we're very conscious of time this week because I've got a meeting in, in eight minutes. So, so <laughs> let me ask you the question. <laughs> what does value for money mean to you, Caroline? Thank you. Um, so like like all your other all your other um, previous guests, I would definitely say that value for money is more than just costs and it's more than just the um, net return. Um, it's about thinking about how you support the member across the entire journey of their relationship. I think with you as a, as a pension provider, not just about what it looks like for them in retirement, but but also all the way through in a way that I think could potentially encourage more consideration of uh, financial well-being and sort of more holistic mm. approach to someone's financial well-being and planning across their across their lifetime. Um, if I may, a slightly different spin, um, thinking yeah. about value for money as regards responsible investment. So this mm. is and continues to be the latest buzzword which is great for, for Nico and for myself. Thank you very much to sure. everyone for, for keeping us in jobs. But um, sometimes from what I see across the industry, we're thinking about value for money from a responsible investment perspective. It's too easy to get distracted by all the noise and the latest the latest hot topic. And good, good value for money from your responsible investment, particularly your stewardship practices, is all about being intentional and focused. It's about recognising, taking a step back and thinking about what the parameters of your influence might be thinking about how the nature of your investment arrangements help shape what kinds of things you can do on stewardship, thinking about what ESG issues are most material to your mm. portfolio, um, and thinking about how you use your stewardship tools and also how you work with your asset managers to ensure where you use them, uh, to ensure that they are doing the kind of stewardship, the kind of responsible investment that has the most impact on member outcomes. and. Mm. For me, a key part of this is ensuring that you get good reporting from your asset managers yeah, on the yeah. future. So I've got good, Nick. So I've got a little bit of a bug there about this, where quite often, and I haven't seen Newton's reporting, by the way. So I've absolutely no. no you need to. You need to give us some money then. A future conversation. A future conversation. But there is some reporting from asset managers that I've seen one stewardship was all about the number of engagements they've had and on which topics and mm. that's sort of interesting but it doesn't tell you anything about how successful or how meaningful their stewardship approach has been and right. i know that this is something that the industry generally is getting to grips with and it requires systems and processes and so on um, but until trustees get that information it becomes hard for them to understand the extent to which stewardship is doing what it needs to do for yeah. members' best interest interests yeah you see but this is um 
So there, there has been, and, and, and obviously as a DC investor, you're probably quite passive. Sorry, I'm not you, the listeners, and I've come from the sort of DC space. Not taking so, communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Says he, you can see how, how the, the angle of my back is. Like so, um, but as a passive investor, you might have 3,000 companies in your portfolio. So then, you know, and you, there's no way you can do any quality engagement, right? So, so uh, it just becomes this numbers game. How many letters have I sent to the boards of of companies? Um, but I do think in the active space, you know, that that sense of being an integrated firm of linking ESG risks and opportunities into strategies and engaging on those means it's not just, you know, meeting a company and shooting the breeze and doing research. It's, it, it's focused on kind of managing those risks. So, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, our competitors can provide that sort of data to you. We can, if you need to, <laughs> to find uh, to find someone who can. But but you know, so we we face quite a lot of challenge actually from our clients and the consultants as we move to that model because they just wanted numbers, and um, you know, I, I I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'd say you maybe are taking off a zero from kind of saying engagement is just any time you talk to a company to engagement is focused on outcomes and tracking those outcomes kind of through to through to conclusion um and then the consultants go but well, you're telling me you're doing 10 times less <laughs> kind of engagement this year it's like no 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 yeah. we're doing exactly the same amount of engagement we're yeah. just actually counting it better yeah. um yeah. so there's loads of those sort of disclosure biases um you know and and nobody has enough time to kind of get get to the layer below and what they're doing right so um it's quite it's, it's a really interesting really interesting topic can i come back to the value for money framing so so just what's what's your view what's railpen's view in terms of esg risk and return is that intimately connected or are they sort of two is it dual objectives just just where are you on that yeah so we, so we think about it sort of risk-adjusted return. So we think about it yeah. sort of very, very holistically. Um, and if I can pick up on your, did you use the word integrated or did I use the word integrated? Said integrated, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did say integrated, <laughs> good. Um, you know, we consider our approach to ESG to be integrated sort of throughout the investment decisions that we take. So I don't know how much anyone listening on this call is aware of how we structure our investments at RailPen. With the in-house asset manager for the Railways Pension Schemes, um, we manage the majority of our money internally. Um, and actually, we've been doing that more and more over time since around about 2013. Um, and there are benefits um, to doing that. We, we run large amounts of it actively as well. Mm -hmm. So there are benefits from a sustainable ownership perspective for that. Um, we also tend to, even where we are invested in sort of pooled externally managed funds, we tend to, um, uh, even in those instances, we've been able to negotiate some of the voting rights ourselves. Yeah. So we try to get all the voting stuff in-house too. Um, so we see it in sort of a very, very um, holistic sense, but we try to think about um, those E, S and G issues, which are most likely to have a material impact on member outcomes. So we only mm -hmm. have for thematic priorities, for instance, when we think about system-wide stewardship. Um, it's different, of course, when we're looking at the top 100, 120, 150 holdings of ours where we have mm -hmm. the most exposure. In that instance, we have quite a large stewardship team who dedicate quite a lot of their time to thinking about what are the ESG issues that are most material to that particular company. Um, and then we set ourselves objectives, and then we track progress against those objectives in terms of how successful our stewardship has been. Fascinating. We could talk for a very we long could. time. Um, but, but you have a hard stop, the, I do have a hard stop. And we have. So, um, Caroline, thank you so much. It's been that's been brilliant. Uh, very, very good to have you on. Um, have you got anything coming up you wanted to uh, kind of talk about? I do have one thing, if I may, and it's sort of something that I've been feeding into, but it isn't it isn't my thing. So I'm um, passionate about next gen, passionate about trustee diversity in particular as a trustee mm, with yeah. a relatively unusual background myself. And so I've been really pleased that this week uh, Standard Life has launched something called the Trustee Accelerator Program. Um, mm. And it's opening up a two year training program. You get a PMI, specially tailored PMI qualification at the end of it. Um, two years, you get learning support, you get support from trustees and from Standard Life IGC members and pensions experts. And this is all about supporting people who don't necessarily have a pensions background, but would like to be and have the capability of being good pension trustees 
to develop and to have a recognised qualification at the end of it. And, you know, Donna Walsh has been instrumental in taking this forward. It's something the entire team there, as well as um, us and the Master Trust Board, feel passionate about. Applications open in January. So if you're interested in becoming a trustee, but you don't know how to take the first step, please do keep an eye out for it and apply. That's a fantastic initiative mm. um, and, and, and a great point on which to end the podcast because we, you know, we're talking about the future. We've talked about next gen. You know, we've talked about value for money. We've talked about how we can, you know, build better pensions of the future and having a, an, an organisation like Standard Life, you know, actually investing in the future and thinking slightly mm. longer term is, you know, the name of the game. Perhaps those chairs of the companies that we were talking about earlier might want to sort of take a long term perspective as well. Uh, they they might need are. some training. Um, they might so do, yeah. Yep. Might need a bit of training. Um, look, uh, You've got to go, Nico. You've got, got to go. I've got to run. I've got to run. Um, can't talk about the DC Net Zero Summit on the 31st of January at all, but do sign up. Darren, you got anything else to promote? <laughs> no, not, uh, only that we've got Paul Watson from Host Plus next week and then the Right Honourable Nick Sherry um, after. And there's lots of stuff in the autumn statement that we've touched on today. Yep. The future of our pension system. And we'll be picking some of that stuff up with them. Uh, Caroline, fantastic. Thank you very much for spending the time uh, with us. Um, you know, I'm going to get John Chilman on the pod um, early next year, and we're going to do a compare and contrast. Or even <laughs> if we don't, I'm sure Richard Smith would, uh, which would be absolutely I, fantastic. I remain confident that we'll be very aligned, Darren. I, I, I think you would be. Caroline, awesome. that was amazing. Brilliant. Um, so Thank so you, what do we do, Nico? Um, Until say, next week. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> it's goodbye from me and Caroline. And goodbye from me. <laughs>